and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the hut on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who were known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Kellen McPherson, and I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Moses Nagel's report on New York State's consideration for new rules for doulas. Then Willie Terry covered the Black History Month event that took place at the sanctuary and brings us Reverend Jerry Ford's speech about a family history discovery. Later on, Bria Barthel shares information about the Capital Region Clean Energy Hub. After that, Alex Briggs spoke with me about his experience living along the Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock for six months during the protest to stop its construction, the pipeline. Finally, historian Kathy Sheehan tells us about some notable women from this area for Women's History Month. But first, here are the headlines. The Times Union reports that officials at the New York State Education Department are exploring updates to state regulation uh, governing the use of restraint and seclusion on school children. State legislators are considering the multiple bills to curb the use of inappropriate physical force on students, including a proposal to ban seclusion and limit restraint to instances where serious injury is imminent. As was done in Albany, a judge has blocked Poughkeepsie's good cause eviction law, which provides protections for tenants against certain evictions and limits large rent hikes without a justifiable reason. The courts say that the state legislature must authorize such laws. Several top officials in Governor Hochul's administration have been forced out as investigations are underway over whether contracts awarded by the Office of Information Technology Services and Division of Budget allows procurement guidelines. Questions have raised uh, about various state contracts awarded during COVID as well as some that went to a former employer of the acting state budget director who was recently replaced. The Times Union reports that a registered nurse from Albany pled guilty in the U.S. District Court to helping her boyfriend, who was an uh, incarcerated person at the Albany County Jail, operate a multi-state sex trafficking ring that preyed upon underage victims. Rensselaer County has announced that it will work with participating school districts to equip their school buses with bus patrol stop arm photo enforcement technology to capture their license plates of motorists to illegally pass stop school buses that put children in danger as they get on and off the school bus. And our final headline comes from the Public News Service. New York lawmakers have introduced a bill to ban radioactive waste from being discharged from the Indian Point Energy Center. This comes as the facility's owner, Holtec International, is considering dumping treated, but still radioactive, waste into the Hudson River. The river has a history of pollutants being dumped into it, and some 200 river miles are classified as a Superfund site by the EPA. During a forum about the implications of Holtec's actions, physicist Dr. Helen Caldicott describes some of what could end up in the Hudson, such as 
as tritium. You can't remove tritium from water because tritium becomes part of the water, H3O instead of H2O. Tritium gets out into the atmosphere from nuclear power plants. And if you're immersed in a cloud of fog near a nuclear power plant, the tritium in the fog can actually enter the skin. The bill has been introduced by State Senator Peter Harkham. It would fine violators $25,000 a day if caught dumping radiological agents into New York state waters. Second violation fines would increase to $50,000 a day. The bill is under review in the state Senate Environmental Conservation Committee. Up to this point, Holtec International has worked closely with state agencies to ensure a safe process based partly on the joint proposal to decommission Indian Point. Dr. Diane Turco with Cape Downwinders says this is a moment when elected officials need to stand up for their constituents. Let's see, can our laws really protect the people? And can our legislators and our elected officials do the best for the people? This is a real big test. Earlier this month, at a meeting of the Indian Point Closure Task Force and Decommissioning Oversight Board, residents spoke against dumping the waste and recommended other methods. One option is leaving the waste in tanks on site so radioactive agents are safer to remove. Others include transferring it to out-of-state sites and possibly allowing the wastewater to evaporate. For Public News Service, I'm Edwin J. Vieira. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. And that's it for our headlines. And for those just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, you can go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. The New York State Senate hosted a large gathering of birth doulas on March 7th at the Capitol. They were there to discuss a new proposal to allow insurance policies for births services that proponents say that could drastically reduce the maternal mortality and other dangers connecting to childbirth. Moses Nagel reports. Shimani Gibson, 30 years old, died 13 days after giving birth. Amber Rose Isaac, 26 died due to complications of an emergency C-section. Shasia Washington, 26, from undergoing a C-section. Denise Williams, 29, 58 hours after seeking postpartum care for a pulmonary embolism. This list is not exhaustive, but the truth is we know these names, and this is the fear with which we go through the birthing process, oftentimes as black women. And what we need to remember is that in New York, 78% of maternal deaths in black individuals were declared preventable. And we know that a crucial piece of combating this maternal mortality crisis is the role of doulas. That was State Senator Samra Brooks speaking on Tuesday, March 7th at the New York State Senate Health Committee's hearing on a new proposal to integrate doulas into the state medical system and allow Medicaid to reimburse for doula services. Liz Adeo, a birth doula and part of the company Afterglow Albany Birth, explained what a doula does. We've been giving birth from the dawn of man and we used to have support and it really was usually families or we'd live in villages and we'd be able to support that process. But in our modern day, we really don't have access to that as much as we used to. And so doulas kind of fill the gap. And what they do is support the prenatal, the birth and labor and the postpartum portion of the first birth year. 
The ways that we support are through education, information. We give um, physical support, emotional support through the birthing process. Um, we help people with birth planning and figuring out what their intentions are for the birth. And then we attend the birth with them. And then postpartum, we do support as well and with breastfeeding and from hospital to home, that transition. Her colleague, Saratoga doula Christine Hernandez, addressed the hearing. The United States is facing a maternal and infant health crisis. Black and brown birthing people are dying of pregnancy and birth-related causes at a rate of, depending on who you ask, sometimes three, four, or five times higher than white birthers, according to the Centers for Disease Control. In the state of New York, approximately 31% of live births occur by cesarean section, despite the recommendation of 10 to 15% by the World Health Organization. That means 31% of people are sent home two to three days after having major abdominal surgery to care for a newborn when they aren't even supposed to be walking up a flight of stairs. In addition to the dangers to their physical health, birthing people are also facing a mental health crisis, which has only gotten worse post-COVID. After all the many visits a pregnant person has, after birth there is minimal follow-up care. Most postpartum visits with a care provider are not scheduled until six weeks after birth, leaving perinatal mood and anxiety disorders to go unnoticed and untreated. Doulas have long been filling in the gaps in care provided by our mental health care system. Doulas have the unique opportunity to work closely with birthing people and provide physical and emotional support during childbirth and postpartum. Studies have shown that doula support during childbirth lowers the risk of cesarean by up to 39% and improves maternal health outcomes overall. Shorter labors, less unnecessary medical intervention, and higher APGOR scores for babies. Doulas encourage people to advocate for themselves, letting them know what their rights are as a patient in the hospital system. They also encourage agency and ownership of the birthing experience, helping to combat the discrimination and marginalization that some birthing people face in our medicalized maternal care system. They provide reassurance and emotional security, especially in marginalized communities where people feel disempowered or uncomfortable with their care providers. They help facilitate connection to community resources and develop a relationship with the birthing person that continues long after the postpartum period, leading to a greater sense of connectedness and safety. Having pregnancy support that comes from within people's own communities fosters trust and eases anxiety. Currently, there are many barriers to accessing doula services, and they exist and range from the lack of availability of doulas to financial constraints. Ms. Adeo explained how the proposed program could work. So insurance companies are starting to understand the value of our services and how we can apply that through their benefits. Right now, for example, in the Capital District, there's a private insurance, CDPHP, and they have a new program that started in January where they're reimbursing families through their wellness programs up to $1,500 for doula services. So that's a really good reimbursement rate. I think the average for doulas in the state is around $1,200. I think it goes up to $2,500 if you're closer to New York City. So the way that that program works is that you would go through um, the website and you get reimbursed for what you've paid the doula. It's like for your gym reimbursement right, or something right. like that. But for Medicaid, we would actually get our, our own NPI numbers as doulas, as providers, and we would directly be billing Medicaid for services. I believe in the pilot program, um, you can bill for four 
prenatal meetings, the labor and birth support, and then four postpartum meetings. So they all have their own codes. And what do you hope will be the results of the hearing? I'm hoping that through the testimonies given by doulas that they understand the value of what we do and how we really do catch things. You know, in this country, you see your doctor every month, then every two weeks, and then every week, and then you have your baby. And then we say, goodbye, we'll see you in six weeks. And you have a mother who may have some medical needs, maybe even isn't supposed to lift anything heavier than her baby or go up a flight of stairs because she's had a cesarean section. And we're not seeing them until six weeks postpartum. So doulas are in the home seeing people and we catch things. I mean, I've caught my clients having fevers and, you know, having like passing clots and and things that really needed attention. And they're busy caring for a newborn, (laughs) trying to keep a baby alive. So their like health is not necessarily the first thing on their mind. Um, But we are looking, we're really holding that mother um, and holding that family um, and holding space for them. And we're catching things. So it's, that's really the value of the doula. And we're hoping that this hearing today, they're understanding that and, and passing it. I asked Ms. Odeo what her concerns were as her craft entered the formal medical system. This is not easy work for a doula. We love our families. We, you know, we love this work that we're doing, but it is not sustainable if the payout rates for doulas are too low. Um, so uh, in the way back um, years ago, when they were first, before the pilot program, they were, um, I think they were reimbursing doulas like $400 for everything, um, which is just not sustainable. You think about, you know, a doula working in New York City where it's so expensive to live. And, you know, we're only one person. We can't just take tons and tons of clients. Like we are up, you know, on call all the time. We are not sleeping. You know, we're, we're in hospitals for days, sleeping on floors sometimes. So there's only one of us and we can only help so many people. So the reimbursement rate really does need to be something that's sustainable for our work um, and values the time that we put into each client. Because the reason why doulas are valuable, the reason why we reduce cesarean rates, shorten labors is is built on the trust that's built between the client and the doula over the period of time that we're working together. Mm. That's a lot of work um, to build that trust. And it really requires a lot of exposure to the family and understanding, you know, what their needs are, what their individual intentions are for the birth. Um, So I think in terms of sustainability, it needs to be a good rate of reimbursement. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's on the doula end of things. On the client end, it needs to be Um, something that's easily understandable as to why it could be valuable for them. So it does probably need to come with some literacy around why they might want a doula for a birth um, and a lot of outreach when it comes to, you know, basically just saying, hey, this is a service that you can get, you know, for free, basically. Senator Samra Brook closed the testimony on Tuesday with a note of optimism. If you had asked me a year and a half ago if I would be sitting here in front of a room full of people with doulas from actually all over the country, I probably would have said that's probably not going to happen that, that quickly. But the fact that we are at what I'm deeming doula day is tremendous and it shows that we have the right people in the right positions to finally move this forward on a state level and hopefully to be a model for the states who have not quite figured it out um, as well as we have. So 
My commitment to you all is to continue to bring you all to the table, whether you're community-based doulas, whether you're providers otherwise, people who have experienced doula care, because those are the voices that have to continue to inform the decisions we make as policymakers, but also as people with lived experience, knowing what it's like. So our mothers deserve better, our children deserve better, and we're committed to doing better. So thank you all so much. Reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, this is Moses Nagel. On our website, we have more stories on doulas and midwives and birthing. And coming up, uh, possibly tomorrow, we have another story on doulas, the importance, and highlighting Mama Glow. On to you, Kaylin. Sounds like an interesting interview tomorrow. Moving right along to the second segment. On Saturday, February 25th, 2023, Hudson Mohawk roaming liver correspondent Willie Terry attended the Black History Conference celebration at the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. In part two of this report, you will hear from the program speaker, Reverend Jerry Ford, vice president of the Troy NAACP and the president of Team Hero, talking about a family history discovery. Um, and at this time, I would like to turn the program over to Jerry Ford, who is the Vice President of the Troy Branch of the NAACP and President of Team Hero. Jerry Ford. So I just want to thank y'all once again for coming out, beautiful people. Uh, we are celebrating Black History Month. And for what I understand, not only are we celebrating Black History Month, but we're making Black History, right? That's what we do. We make history. For those who may not know me, my name is Jerry Ford. I am uh, the pastor of Team Hero, which is a faith-based community action agency right here in the city of Troy. We've been organized now for over a decade. Our goal is to help families gain self-sufficiency. We do that by focusing on the lives of our young people. And when you grab a young person, you get them out of the street, then you connect it to their family. So we thank y'all for all the support um, with the Team Hero movement, especially the sanctuary, Brandon and Steve, have been instrumental in our movement and helping us you know, um, take things to the next level. I also want to give a shout out well, first and foremost, man, I gotta give a shout out to Miss Ford. Y'all give it up to Miss Ford. I almost messed up, man. I caught myself. Yeah, whenever, whenever you see me, you see her, even if she's not here. So whenever you see me, make sure you understand that you see her. I thank her. You know, um, we just recently celebrated 21 years of marriage. Thank God that he gave me such a you know wonderful partner. I want to give a shout out also to my man Steve. Where's Steve at, man? Stand up, stand up. When I say making black history, that's what I mean. For those who may not know, Steve is the councilman right here in District 2. The councilman, that is Councilman Steve Figueroa. 
I, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but you are the first Hispanic to sit on the seat, correct? Okay, you're the first Hispanic to sit on the seat. Probably one of the youngest individuals to sit on that seat also. And I definitely want to give a big shout out to him. Not only he's my friend, you know what I mean? He, we, we, we rock together, but he also is the director of the Hard Knocks basketball program, one of the programs of Team Hero. His program, what he does with the young men, they play basketball primarily. We use that as our bait to get them in. But once we get them in, we talk about aggression replacement training. We also talk about um, workforce development. And we also talk about mentoring. So whenever you support Team Hero, please know that you're supporting our basketball team. Um, our basketball team has become very near and dear to us recently because um, we lost, unfortunately, our second uh, basketball player on last year. And so um, we want to definitely acknowledge the lives that have been lost right here in Troy. Had that who have inspired the movement that we have in you know, reaching out to our young people. Um, Jalen Gurrier Lewis, you know, was one of our basketball players. He passed away last year. He was murdered. Um, uh, 30 days prior to his murder, um, Anthony was murdered right here on the next block. See, I got to make it make sense for y'all. Right now on the next block, he was 16. He got murdered. Then down the street, that's where Jalen got murdered within 30 days later. He was only 16. A couple weeks later after that, Zakai got murdered down the street also. So we're talking about in the span of six months, we lost, we lost three young men, two of them the age of 16, one of them the age of 14. We gotta make this stuff make sense, man. We gotta bring these things together so that we can really, really, really see change in our community. And so it's inspiring to have everybody in here because I know that everybody is here for the same reason, which is change, right? That's why we're here, right? We committed to that. And so with that being said, um, we're gonna move forward in our program for this evening. Um, we have a couple of poets. Uh, we have a musical performance by a phenomenal individual by the name of King Malachi. And then after that, our brother Malik Muhammad is gonna take us through a walk through this fantastic museum. When you look around, this all is the brainchild of an individual. I mean, he, he got a download in his mind and then he took the time to walk it out. And this is it. And so I have me and, and my sons, shout out to Jerry and Jariah too. My sons are here, Jerry and Jariah also, Miss Olivia. And um, as we helped him put this, put the display together today, we had an opportunity to just, you know, just to get some of the wealth of knowledge that he has. And so one thing that he dropped on me that I didn't know was that Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King's grandmother was also assassinated. I didn't know that. She was assassinated in the church. Walked in the church and assassinated the lady. Man, don't you understand how powerful we are as a people? These are the tactics they gotta use to try to stop us. They don't want us to know who we are. As long as we don't know our identity and the power that is held within us, they are okay. The Bible says they perish for a lack of knowledge. But if the people who were called by my name would humble themselves, turn and change their wicked ways, then he'll do what? Come on, man. I thought we was in here with some people who know the word. He said he's going to do what? 
He gonna heal the land. Oh yeah, I'm a real pastor too, so don't, don't get it twisted. Don't get it twisted, I know the word, man. So this is what he said he would do. He would heal the land once we turn from our wicked, humble ourselves. So I feel like we're in a place where we are seeing a humbling of our people. We are, we, are, we are humble enough that we can receive the downloads that God is sending to us. And speaking of downloads, let me share one quick one with y'all, personal one real quick. Give me one second. So when I say receive a download, you have to be in a place that you can really have some personal time with the creator. And recently, unfortunately, due to a situation, I was in that space. But I'm thankful that I was in that space and God created the time through my situation that he could have my undivided attention. And in my undivided attention, he revealed something to me. So this booklet right here was given to me over 15 years ago, right? It has the date on it right on the front page. It says February October, I mean Friday, October the 19th of 2007, right there. That was the date I received it. I received it and I put it down because the individual that the booklet was made for was more important to me. See, this was this right here, this is my great, great uncle. His name is Pastor Drevin Jeremiah Ford. And this celebration of his 40 years of pastoring his church was my very first time meeting him. So I was more interested in meeting this individual that I had been named after, but I had never knew because me growing up, there was a lack of males in my family. Got caught up in drugs early. They got killed. And so this individual was instrumental because it was my first time meeting someone that was in the walk that I was walking because it was about my beginning walk and my, my faith walk. And so I met him and I spent the next 15 years getting to know him, but never picking up the book. So he passed away in um, 2000. He passed away at 98 years old. I almost made it to 100 and passed away at 98 years old. And we had so much time and we had all these laughs and all these memories together. But I picked the book up, right? So this is what I want to show you real quick. So I picked the book up and I opened it. This is the first page, right? This is the very first page. And some of you may have heard this, that back in, back in the days, they said that the, the easiest way to hide something from a black person was well. That's the easiest way to hide something from a black person. You put it in the book. You know why they ain't gonna never pick it up and read. Kevin Hart, is it Kevin? I think it's Kevin Hart. He tell a story of going off to college, right? His mama gave him a Bible. His mama gave him a Bible. He, he, this is his story. Y'all can Google it. He'll tell you. You can watch it on YouTube. He said that his mama gave him a Bible when we went off to college, and things was falling apart during his life. His money was messed up. All this stuff. And every time he called his mama, she'll say, "Did you pick your Bible up and read yet?" And so he'll just dismiss it. Then he got desperate one time. He's like, Mama, I'm telling you all this stuff going. She said, boy, did you pick the Bible? He said, I'm going to get it right now. He went and grabbed the Bible. And the front page, she had put an envelope with about, I forgot the amount of money, a couple thousand dollars right there. So if he would have picked the Bible up when she first day, he would have known that he had everything he needed right then. They hide stuff in the book. That was Reverend Jerry Ford, president, vice president of the Troy NAACP and president of Team Hero, the founder. And Willie Terry brought us that recap of the recent uh, Black History Month celebration at the sanctuary. 
And there's more of this coverage from Willie Terry. You can find that at our website, mediasanctuary.org. For those just tuning in, I'm Kaylin McPherson. And I'm Sina Bazilahiki. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany. Also streaming online at mediasanctuary.org, this program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. The Capital Region Clean Energy Hub helps homeowners, renters, and businesses access energy-related resources and programs available through the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, or NYSERDA. The hub serves Albany, Rensselaer, Schenectady, and five other regions regional counties. Bria Barthel tells us more. Often when people think about Cornell Cooperative Extension here in New York, we have images of farms or household tips and tricks for nutrition. But I'm speaking now with Brad Toll, who is going to be telling us about Cornell Cooperative Extension's involvement in a new project in collaboration with a number of other organizations. So Brad, what's the project? Hey, thanks for having me. So Capital District Clean Energy Hub uh, is sort of what we're the working title we have for it right now. It's an energy program. Essentially, we're helping people gain access to educate people about their access to clean energy that they might not have known about. Community solar, for, for example, uh, energy efficiency programs, uh, heat pumps is another thing. All this is under the NYSERDA uh, umbrella. And NYSERDA is New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, right? Correct. They have a lot of programs for low to moderate income families or individuals, as well as market rate customers. A, a lot of people don't know these things exist. And B, even if they do know they exist, they can be kind of hard to to get to or to understand or figure out how to navigate the, the system. Um, so, so we're just kind of here to help facilitate that. We're planning on doing a lot of outreach programs. We have one educator right now. She goes to outreach programs. She helps individuals with uh, their applications and things like that. And we have another one starting next week. So by this spring and this summer, we should be pretty active in a lot of communities. The hub uh, covers eight counties from Washington County down to Greene County. We're starting to kind of look at how can we raise the awareness of these programs, but also how can we help them, even if they know about it, how can we help them really get them to the energy savings and the clean energy access that really should be available to everybody, not just the people who know or have the resources to get to them, you know. And once you said savings, I suspect our listeners in Troy area and, and Rensselaer County will be interested. Do you cover that area? Is that yes, one of do. your counties? Yeah, Rens- Rensselaer Excellent. County. Yes. Yep. Okay. So tell us about the ways we can save on energy. Well, one of the ways that we're really uh, hoping to get people connected to right now, because it's a very easy process, is uh, through community solar programs. Community solar programs through groups like Solarize Albany, which is not just reserved to Albany. Anybody anybody uh, with a utility like National Grid or, or Central Hudson, even NYSEG, these community solar farms, they're not the you know these wholesale big solar fields that you see sometimes that are sending power to maybe New York City or something like that. These are more focused on creating 
access to clean energy for somebody who might rent a home or might have a house that's completely in shade or doesn't have a good roof for solar or doesn't want solar on their roof. What you can do is essentially this, these fields that you drive by sometimes, those are all just these banks of solar panels that people can sort of reserve spots in. So say you need nine panels to power your house, right? And what you can do is you can say you, you work with your, the, the solar as Albany, they work with your utility bill and they say, you need to produce this much power to get your energy from solar panels. It takes a, it takes a couple months because they have to submit it to the utility. But once it starts going through, and I have done this, I, I actually am connected to a community solar for myself. They guarantee a rough savings of 10% on your electrical costs. So that doesn't include the meter expenses. It doesn't include gas. If, you know, like national grid, you have electric and gas through national grid or something like that. It doesn't have any savings in there. It's just your electrical cost, but it's a 10% savings. So when those rates go up, that 10% is always based on whatever the rates are. So it's, it's a way to access solar. You know, it might not be the same as buying a system or leasing a system and putting it on your home and having payoff period or anything like that, but it is a way to do it for a lot of people who wouldn't be otherwise able to do it. And that's part of the thing that we're trying to do is say, hey, look, you can have solar. You can get this power. It is cheaper. And this clean energy access does benefit your community in other ways. It's not just your savings. It's also sort of a step towards cleaner air, hopefully. <laughs> that's sort of the idea behind all this. And you said that Cornell Cooperative Extension's role in this is primarily the information and the help almost an ombudsman, if you will, of helping people figure out how to sign up for it, helping people figure out other ways that they can save through NYSERDA and other programs. Correct. Now, you yeah. mentioned Solarize Albany. Are you working just with that organization or other solar farms as well or other solar organizations? Solarize is basically where we're directing people right now. We work with Bill Reinhardt over there. He's a great guy super informative, super helpful. We know we can trust sending people in that direction. Solarize vetted their organizations that they're working with. We know that it's we're not sending somebody into murky waters. Personally, I'm very concerned with sending somebody into the wrong direction with any of this. So I'm, I kind of follow every little point I can to make sure that we're not going to create a situation that is not what we're telling people. NYSERDA also has a program called Solar for All, and that's an income-based program. It's a little bit different because it's not based on a percentage like where, where you save the 10% on the rates. It's just a flat rate off of your utility bill. It can range from 5 to $15 based on your income eligibility. You don't really have to do much. You don't have to sign anything. You don't have to sign up for anything. It's just, I mean, you do have to sign up for something, but it's just a flat savings off of the utility bill. You mentioned something before we started recording about how some of the organizations you work with on the Clean Energy Hub, Radix Environmental Sustainability Center, Affordable Housing Partnership, Troy Architectural Program, that they're involved in workforce development. So it's not just savings that you help, but you also help with bringing jobs around this. Can you say more about that? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, the hub has sort of a lot of, um, I, I kind of, I don't know if you remember the eighties cartoon Voltron. I think of it as Voltron, which was everybody sort of has these different parts. I guess it's like a gestalt, uh, philosophy. Um, you know, the, you know, each finger on a hand kind of thing, everybody's doing a different thing, but we all work together. Yeah. So those groups, they are working very hard to try to bring some access to, to clean energy based jobs. Like I know that seat was working with 
they, they're hoping to kind of get some stuff going with uh, energy auditing programs. Um, you know, Radix is looking at how to get people maybe access to jobs on development of solar farms and stuff like that. So it, it's still connected to this clean energy agenda, but it's also this arm of it that is bringing work to these communities as well. So it's, it's a holistic thing, but it, it, everybody sort of has to have, dial in on their own but we cross over in different ways, you know, so it's, it's, we're, we're all still getting together on it. Okay. So the SEEK Center, Social Enterprise and Training Center in Schenectady is one of the organizations that's helping with workforce development. Affordable Housing Partnership has a website with information on all of this and is helping with workforce development. And Radix Center is just all the wonderful things that Radix Center does. Is there any other organization you want to call out specifically? So I think you mentioned TAP. I don't remember if you mentioned TAP and Troy. They've been great too. They're, they work very hard on all this. We have a few people over there that have been uh, working very hard in helping create the website that we're going to direct people to ultimately. Um, hopefully next time we talk, I'll have a website we can send people to uh, um, that's specifically for this. Um, and uh, we're growing. We're still learning the ropes. We're still learning... I just this week I was kind of making a point of talk trying to talk to these individual partners to say hey like what how can Cornell help you what are, what are we doing together stuff like that because I'm relatively new at this position too this position didn't exist before um I've been at it about a month now so you okay. mentioned that there's a dedicated website still in development because this is a new program but in the meantime where can our listeners go for information for right now, I would direct people to the Affording Housing Partnerships website, which is ahphome.org. Uh, there's an energy tab, and it'll open up your options for energy efficiency, solar, and heat pumps. So whatever direction you're looking to go in, if you think my home needs better insulation, or I'd like to get access to community solar, or I'm interested in heat pumps, all those things are right there. And when you sign up through that, we'll see that you're looking for somebody to contact you and we will reach out to you with one of our educators. Somebody will reach out and we'll help you get started in the process, basically. Great. So that's Affordable Housing Partnership, AHP Home, ahphome.org. And I see on the website, I have it open now, that the eight counties you cover are Green, Albany, Schenectady, Saratoga, Warren, Washington, Rensselaer, and Columbia. You got it. Brad, it's been great talking with you. Thanks for the information. I'll check back in with you in a while once you have your website and things are rolling. Thanks a lot, Brad. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. That was Brad Toll from Cornell Cooperative Extension. And this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. That link mentioned is in the description to the story on our website, mediasanctuary.org. Dakota Access Pipeline protesters gathered at the Sacred Stone Camp on the Standing Rock Reservation in 2016 to stop the construction of the pipeline going through Standing Rock Sioux Tribe land. A film about this confrontation is coming to Albany, and Alex Briggs, who joined the protest for six months, spoke with Sina Bazilla Hickey to tell us more. The film, On Sacred Ground, is a narrative film about the fight to stop the building of the Dakota Access Pipeline from the perspective of a white journalist and the oil company behind the pipeline. This film will be screened on March 17th at the Earthshot Project. And to tell us more, we're now joined by Alex Briggs. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thanks so much for having me. 
Can you give us a brief understanding of what this film is about and your experience with the Dakota Access Pipeline? So the film I hadn't heard of, I was approached by the founder of the Earthshot Project who uh, decided to screen the film. And it's a dramatization of the already very dramatic uh, events that happened on uh, Standing Rock Reservation in 2016 and 2017. And those events were the unlawful construction of the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline and a massive protest movement that that arose to try and stop that. And ultimately, the pipeline currently was built but was shut down because uh, it wasn't built through the legal channels. There was collusion between the chief, actually a prior chief of, of the Standing Rock Sioux Nation and the oil company. And it was originally a pipeline that was supposed to go through the capital city of Bismarck, but due to resistance from like white North Dakota people, they changed that route and put it right next to the Lakota nation. And there's tons of history there already from the murder of Didding Bull in, in 1892, I believe it was, as well as um, the treaties and the um, Red Clouds War in uh, 1867 and all of this stuff. And then in the 70s, the, the creation of Lake Oahe and the damming of the Missouri River and the flooding of the breadbasket of, of the Lakota, Dakota nation there. So all of this stuff is things that I really didn't know a lot about. Like I probably vaguely recognized the name Sitting Bull in 2015, but I was shocked at my ignorance when I got to Standing Rock in in 2016. And it just was such a amazing experience. And I'd been an environmental activist for years at that point. In 2010, I was a part of blocking a tar sands pipeline with a climate camp, which is essentially what uh, people were doing there in North Dakota. So I felt like I was somewhat skilled and useful at this stuff. I'd done a lot of nonviolent direct action in the past. And so when this organizer of the Earthshot project said that she was going to be screening this film, I jumped at the chance to open these conversations again now. And so I don't know a whole lot about the film, but I look forward to, to seeing it and being able to talk with anybody who comes out uh, about these things. So you decided to live along the pipeline, the Dakota Access Pipeline, for six months due to your previous experience with pipeline activism. And you said that you were confronted by your ignorance on the history of Indigenous activism and identity. So how did you arrive there and how did your identity as a white person influence how you participated? I was headed out to a wedding, actually, in, I guess, August of 2016. And I'd been involved with activism and housing justice stuff uh, with 
with some great folks in Rochester. And as I passed through, they showed me a video on uh, Democracy Now! of a Lakota grandmother named LaDonna Brave Bull Allard, who was calling out um, white allies in particular, but just any allies to, to come and protest and, and put their bodies and their freedom on the line to try and stop this pipeline. She had been a part of founding a camp on her land there on on Standing Rock in the town of Cannonball since April, um, and then it had grown really just as an indigenous thing. And then there were other uh, Native nations from across the country who came in mostly in August. For the most part, it was, I would say, predominantly a Native American protest up until August. And then at that point, calls started going out for more um, white allies to come, and it grew enormously at the end of August and into September. It was an incredible movement in so many ways because it wasn't just protest, especially in September. It was also a very different thing in August. Like I said, it was mostly Native. And then in September, it was a very hopeful feeling. And then October, things got much more intense. And November, they got, and then I guess it just kind of got progressively more intense and more sort of tough and violent and difficult and cold in through November and December and January and February. So how was this experience by being there and listening and seeing what was going on how has this changed your understanding of land, of politics with pipelines? How how have you taken this into who you are now? Absolutely. Um, it really deepened my perspective on environmentalism. I considered myself dedicated to environmentalism, but I knew nothing of the indigenous treaties that have been broken across the country. I was lucky enough to go to school in in Canada, and it's much more known about there. But South Dakota is essentially all unceded territory that was won by the Lakota in a war, and a peace treaty was signed, and then reneged upon. And the story of all the different nations of the the so-called United States are different. But in Lakota country, those reservations started out as prisoner of war camps. And the history there is just atrocious and something that demands restitution. And to this day is being that colonial legacy is upheld because South Dakota is a majority Lakota, but through various gerrymandering and other means, it has never been led by, by Lakota people and, uh, and isn't to this day. And that indigenous perspective on water and on land thinking and seeing the land as our relatives is a much stronger way to protect the land than trying to come at it from a, you know, one of the more common white perspectives like ecological services or, or one of these, these other ways that environmentalists try and protect uh, land and ecology. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experience. And I'm sure we're just touching on the very basics of of what you've taken away from living for six months at Standing Rock. 
Um, so the film on Sacred Ground will be showing on March 17th at Earthshot Project. I know Myron Dewey created a film, Awake, A Dream from Standing Rock. Are there other films from an Indigenous perspective that you would recommend? Yeah, thank you for mentioning Awake um, and Myron Dewey's work. There's also one called Black Snake Killers, which is put out by Unicorn Riot, which was the embedded activist media that was there at every protest all the way back, I think pretty much from April through through February and on. So I definitely recommend Unicorn Riot for a lot of things, um, also George Floyd and anything that they're covering. So for listeners who'd like to attend the showing, the screening of On Sacred Ground on March 17th, where can listeners find more information? The event will be at 323 Hamilton Street. Uh, doors at 6, and then the film will start at 6.30. I believe that you can find the Earthshot Project online. That information will be in the description to this interview on our website. Thank you so much, Alex Briggs, for joining us on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you, Tina, and have a wonderful day. The website for the location where that film will be showing, that's earthshotproject.org. Moving on, uh, in honor of Women's History Month, we went into our archives to pull out Rensselaer County historians Kathy Sheehan's conversation with producer Melissa Bromley about some of the remarkable women who lived in this area. I'm Kathy Sheehan. I am the Rensselaer County and Troy City historian and educator here at the Hart Clewitt Museum of Historic Rensselaer County. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kathy. It is Women's History Month. And I know that you know a lot of pretty amazing women who are from Rensselaer County and the Capital Region. Uh, is there anybody in particular who you'd like to talk about today? Oh my gosh, a, a, a few. I, I've picked out um, like four or five, <laughs> five women. Uh, one is a woman who was born, didn't spend a lot of time here in Rensselaer County, but she is um, so important to her name. And you may have heard a little bit about her, um, Edmonia Lewis, who was the first African-American and Native American sculptor and uh, she was born around 1844 down in Greenbush in Southern Rensselaer County. Um, spent, we don't really know too much about her early life here. Um, her mother died young. She was raised by her father. She was part um, Ojibwa, oh, I always pronounce this wrong, Ojibwa, Ojibwa mother. And um, don't know much about her father, but her artwork is spectacular. If you Google her sculptures, cause she was able to go to Boston. She got some early trace. She went to Oberlin College and had to leave because she was uh, attacked and um, they accused her of, of attacking a white person. So she ended up having to leave, goes to Boston and um, is befriended by William Lloyd Garrison and uh, a sculptor named Edward Brackett. And so Brackett really, uh, she becomes but kind of his apprentice and she's able to make enough money by doing some, some work there that she was able to go to Rome. And actually, the thing she made it was the one she made money on was a bust of uh, Colonel Robert Shaw, who was the um, who led the all black uh, 54th Massachusetts Regiment. If you remember the movie Glory with mm -hmm. Denzel Washington uh, about the, the, the 54th uh, Black Regiment. Uh, so she did his bust and then well, around what time was this that that she went to Rome? Um, she is I see, she goes to Rome. When did she go to Rome? Around, uh, right after the Civil War. 
um, 1870s. Wow. Um, that's around when she's there and she spends her final year, her, kind of her final years are really shrouded in a little bit of a mystery. Uh, Bobby Reno, who is East Greenbush Town historian is kind of taken her on. And uh, so she's, she's kind of digging into her life. They thought that she um, died in Rome in Italy, but it turns out she actually went to England but she actually met with Frederick Douglass in Rome. Um, she did these a lot of depictions of early Greek and and uh, Roman architecture uh, in marble. I mean, absolutely stunning work uh, and ridiculously expensive. <laughs> I, everybody keeps asking me if we have one in our collection. I said we couldn't afford it. The Albany Institute doesn't even have one. Wow. They have a great sculpture collection. They would love one too. Uh, you can see her work at the Met, though. You get, she has she has some work at the Met, so. Uh, so that's 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 one of the persons. And um, Edmonia, what's your last name again? Edmonia Lewis. Edmonia Lewis. Edmonia yeah. Lewis. We might yeah. have to make two interviews out of this because I think we're about halfway through this. But let's let's oh, no. let's move on yeah. to the the next person. So one of the other big, I'm 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 a big fan of teachers, and um, there was a teacher who was a suffragette. And her name was Evanetta Hare. Um, she was born in 1863 and died in 1938. Taught at school too, not far from the not far from the sanctuary love school and um, she was a huge lawn fight. She fought for uh, better terms for teachers, better contracts. Uh, she fought for women uh, in the Redsler County Political Equality Club. She was a founding member of the Troy Pol Political Equality Club. She spoke on the national on the national scale. When um, was this? Her name is Evanetta Hare. Uh, she was a principal. She became principal of school too. Wow. Um, she went to Troy High. Uh, she when was, when was this? Uh, she let's see. She graduated from Troy High in 1881, and she was principal of school two in 1892 and retired in 1933. Wow. So she had a very long career, a very very long career. Um, we actually got a great quote from her. I was going to read to you real fast. Um, it was 1917. Of course, women had not gotten the right to vote. As a matter of fact, Rensselaer County had voted it down twice. And she said, and I quote, all suffragists will agree with you when you say every male voter should show his right to vote by familiarizing himself with the arguments for and against and by voting not from temporary impulse or from whim. If he does this, if he considers only arguments for and against and no extraneous influences, he will be fair to the women of his state and give them the vote. For this war, and of course they're talking about World War I, in which we are engaged has demolished every argument against women's suffrage. The woman in the home argument, the woman cannot fight argument, the woman does not know enough argument, the danger of feminizing argument. I wish I knew Evanetta here. <laughs> she just sounds like a real pistol. Um, she was really uh, quite an extraordinary woman. And as a principal, you imagine that, you know, her influence really rippled out into the community. Yeah, there's one very grainy photo and you really can barely tell it was out of the newspaper and she's sitting, these kids are just like all surrounding her. And, uh, you know, there's just like these big smiles on her face and everything. I said, oh, you know, she was just so dedicated. Yeah, and we didn't know about her for years. <laughs> what, how did you find out about her? Um, there's been, a, there's a great newspaper website now called FultonHistory.com and this man has, done has digitized more newspapers I think than the Library of Congress has and it's been just this has opened the world up so when you can search in by topic and you know names and so we, you, you type in suffrage and all at once all these names start coming up of people that we hadn't known about mm -hmm. you know 
So, um, and then you get to dig and then you spark, you know, you, you go from there. It's um, like it, a historical, um, what do they call it on YouTube when you get uh, like spiraled into a rabbit hole or something? Yes. Oh, we've gone down some serious rabbit holes. <laughs> and so, next thing you know, you look up and four hours later have gone by. <laughs> I believe it. I could do that too. Um, we just have a couple minutes left and, and we will talk about the other women on another interview. Um, okay. But is there anything else that you want to say about these two women before we move on? Well, I, I think, again, it's it's one of those things we, you know, you hear women are, we're trying to get our just due at this point, you know, and, and that there's so many more stories out. There's always more stories uh, and more, they have had such an impact on the county and, and the history of our Troy and Rensselaer County. So it's exciting. With one more minute left, is there um, anything that you would like to ask the community uh, as far as how they might support the historical work that you guys are doing for women? now and into the future? Well, certainly um, as people have, one of the things we've heard about with COVID this year is everybody's doing these deep dives into their papers and things. So before you throw anything away, let us, send us an email, let us know what you have. Certainly we always can use donations too to keep going. It's, you know, you gotta keep the lights and the heat going and keep staff here. And so gosh, we're always grateful to get any kind of monetary donations really Please, but we are really interested in, you know, what do you, what do you find? What's your, what is your story? Um, we our, our mission statement is recognizing every face and every story. So we want to know the hidden stories. It's, it's not just about rich people and poor, you know, we, we, we want to know about everybody. Send us your story. <laughs> yep, and you can go to the Hart Cluett Museum uh, website to, to find out how to get in touch. Yep, you just go hartcluett.org. Hart Historian Kathy Sheehan is a regular on our program, and there are more. There's another full uh, segment on the history of women, I believe maybe even two, on our website. And that's our show. We hope you've uh, enjoyed the episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And I'm Kayla McPherson. And I'm Sina Bazilahickey, the engineer and co-host and we want to thank all of the volunteers who made this episode possible in addition to Kaylin, <laughs> contributors to today's episodes are mark dunley for the headlines and segments by moses nagel willie terry bria barthel and melissa bromley this program covers stories from social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations if you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on our website or on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. Remember, radio isn't dying, it's growing into the future. Until next time, folks. It's Nico, the youngest producer. You've been listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, featuring news and views from around the New York Capital Region. Listen at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. on Sanctuary Radio, 105.3 FM, Troy.
and online at mediasanctuary.org. You can also visit mediasanctuary.org anytime to hear the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on demand or to sign up for our podcast.